Next hour on most of these the same frequencies. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the program. Today we are going to talk about a rather serious topic: the future. This is cracking the code with Sadir Ispahani. In this episode, Tony Werner, President, Technology Product Experience, Comcast Cable. He credits growing up poor on a farm with teaching him invention skills. When you live like that, one of the things I learned a lot from is nothing's impossible. In those situations, you end up inventing a lot of things to solve everyday problems, whether it's how the gates are working, how to keep cows in. And my father basically thought nothing was impossible. Werner shares a must-do list for business leaders. Don't ever remove somebody's self-esteem publicly, and don't allow any of your folks to do that. Be careful and respectful. Make sure you don't take for granted things that they're doing, and stay away from micromanagement. And weed the garden if you get people in there that are not on the culture that you set up, which is a culture of respect. Werner has been a leader in innovative thinking for decades, and he's still in the front lines of technology. And he can see into the future because he's helping to create it. Everything that can connect is going to connect. The amount of change we're going to see in the next 10 years is going to dwarf anything that you and I have seen in our career. Now your guide for cracking the code, Sudhir Ispahani. Aloha, Tony. Welcome to Cracking the Code. Honored to have you as a guest here. I've had the privilege, Tony, of knowing you for a long time. I've observed and learned a lot from you as a leader. As you know, this podcast is all about paying it forward to the next generation of leaders, and it's about the life lessons that you've learned as a leader uh, since the early days of being thrust into leadership. Tony, we, I'd like to start off asking uh, you to take us back to your childhood. That's where I typically start with a lot of our guests. Give me a little flavor of what it was like growing up what those those moments were like for you and, and what you learned from them. So first of all, Sadir, thank you for having me on, on the podcast here. And I've learned a lot from you uh, as well over the years. And so I think you and I first met in like 96. That's right. Hard to believe it's that long ago. And then we've had a number of, of times together. So thank you. And thank you for doing this. This is what what a great thing to do. So, you know, I guess, uh, you know, I don't want to overly embellish uh, any of the childhood. I grew up uh, on a farm and we were uh, a poor farm. Uh, I won't go into how poor, but we were fairly poor and it was uh, it was good. And I I enjoyed it. I always had food in my stomach. I uh, didn't go hungry. Uh, We didn't have uh, any luxuries uh, at all. In fact, we didn't have things that would be considered staples today. Uh, was, I was 10 years old when we first had running water. Mm. But the, probably the biggest thing uh, that it was is, you know, they always say is that uh, necessity is the mother of invention. Mm. And when you live like that, and one of the things that, uh, you know, I learned a lot from is nothing's impossible. And you, uh, in those situations, you end up inventing a lot of things to solve everyday problems, whether it's, uh, how, how the gates are working, how to keep cows in, other things like that uh, were big. And, uh, and my father, uh, you know, basically thought nothing was impossible. We found a few things that proved us wrong <laughs> along the way. <laughs> yeah. But we would, he would 
tackle the most amazing things, and uh, I would get uh, drug into them. So, it was, but I, I do think that it gave me a good foundation to really be, you know, always look for how to do things versus why things can't be done, uh, because we really didn't have a choice then. Mm. It's um, you know wonderful to hear that background. I know we've talked about it privately before, but for our audience, you know, if you can just share a little bit about what were some of those lessons that you learned, you know, growing up in those humble circumstances that you now carry into your leadership uh, aspect of, of, of the kind of leader you are. I mean, how did that shape you as you observed, uh, you know, your dad and your parents and all of that? So. Well, I think it, it is interesting. So I was the youngest in a family of six. And so I also learned a lot from brothers and sisters along the way. Younger by a long shot, older siblings had children before I was born, just to put the distance between us. But, uh, you know, I think I, I learned a, a lot of things. You know, the one, you know, not so much on leadership, but the idea that always look at how to do things. And when somebody comes and asks you to do something, Instead of right, you know, going right away to why something can't be done, start to try and figure out how to do it uh, was one. But I, I guess another one that was driven into me from a very young age, and it goes with that, is, is respect. Hmm. And I think that's uh, carried through. And uh, as we talk more, I, I think that's turned into a very important uh, thread in my life. And then uh, you were you were taught that. Uh, you had to show respect to your elders. You needed to show respect to uh, guests. You needed to show respect to one another. And a big part of that is that uh, is that respect is mutual. And uh, respect is never a one-way street. If it is, then it's from intimidation and it doesn't last mm -hmm. with it. And so I think it carries in that I've found over the years is that people uh, will generally respect and follow someone who respects them. And so if you want people to follow you, yeah. you're going to have to show respect to them. And, and, and it's just about always deserved because you have very high-powered people you're trying to hire. You're trying to hire the best in class at all levels. Mm -hmm. And you need to respect what they bring. And you need to understand that there's areas that they know a lot more about than you do uh, as you go. And I think it's a, it's a powerful piece and it's one that I try uh, I try to carry into everything and won't say I'm always perfect on it but I, I very much try and uh, it doesn't mean I don't give people a hard time I love doing that but that's really not not a disrespect it's more of a, a kidding and so I've got some of my best technologists that I love to pick on their dress the way they do other things <laughs> but know in the heart of hearts I've got deep respect for their technical knowledge and deep respect for their leadership and deep respect for their work ethic on it and I think that's uh, I think that's absolutely critical as a leader moving along along this journey so of course uh, that childhood upbringing taught you a lot when did you start getting curious about technology and how did you get thrust into the early days of leadership in this world of technology and of course we'll come further on to, to where you are today, but uh, if you can share a little bit about how you got involved and how you got excited about all the technology stuff that you're now today involved in. That is interesting, and uh, 
when you look back on your life, it sometimes looked like looks like a well-rehearsed novel. It's all about <laughs> perfect, but at the times it doesn't. I'm stealing a little bit of this from uh, from somebody else who has said this before. You know, when you're in the heat of things, you're not sure that this is your calling. You're not sure of some of these, especially in the early days uh, as you go. But now, as you look back, it's it's came together so nicely. Uh, that it seems like it was a plan that you had from the get-go. When my plan, when I uh, was in high school uh, early on, I knew I wanted to be in technology. I loved electronics at that time. I loved uh, building things, um, repairing, and that. And so when I went into college, that was the same exact same exact aspiration. <clears throat> so as I did that, you know, I spent. Um, I worked my way through college by repairing televisions and electronic equipment. I had pretty good little business going there uh, on it, and, and I enjoyed it, and I knew that that's what I wanted to do. But I never viewed myself at that time or never thought you don't come out of college thinking I'm going to be a leader. Uh, you know, I came up there thinking I'm going to understand technology. I'm going to show people that I know this better than other people, and I'm going to – be a subject matter expert. And then uh, through, you know, some good fortune and other things, all of a sudden you have a decent sized team and all of a sudden a bunch of things start to, uh, you start to realize that you're, um, you're measured by producing results through others, not by yourself. And you also realize that you're no longer uh, the technical expert, especially in certain areas and that you're hiring that expertise and now is your job is really to lead those people, to support those people uh, in there. And I think that's a transition that kind of happens and it starts to trickle in. And, uh, and sometimes in the early days, it, some of the things that are most detrimental to leadership is you try and maintain that you're the technical expert and, and that. And I think, there, you know, it's kind of a little bit of a light bulb moment or eureka moment when all of a sudden you say, gosh, you know, you're not and uh, let them have their space and, uh, and you have to start supporting them. And I think that happened for me um, in my late twenties, early thirties, when I, you know, first had a staff of uh, a few hundred people, but it, uh, it's one that kind of comes in uh, gradually. And then all of a sudden you, aha, You've been always a very natural uh, leader in terms of just, uh, you know, leading with your uh, heart-first philosophies and just who you are as a person. So as you started uh, exploring that area, were there some thoughts that you had on, you know, what it would take to really, you know, build the kind of teams that you now have? Of course, you've been in this for several decades now, but just rewinding the clock back to a couple of decades ago, you know, how did you feel, you know, as you evolved in, in this very early evolution of cable? So I've been fortunate along the, along the way to, in some cases, inherit great teams, in some cases, uh, get, uh, you know, be able to attract great folks. I mean, it starts by working for good companies and mm. great companies. And uh, if, uh, if I've done anything right, I've been good at selecting great companies. Mm -hmm. And if you look at, you know, I look at Rogers as a fantastic company. 
I look at uh, Telecommunications Inc. and Liberty as a fantastic company. Uh, and the fund have landed in a better company than Comcast. And so it starts with a, a great company uh, that you work for. And then inside that great company that has a good culture that you can build upon. And then you start to attract great talent and great talent that gets great talent. And, uh, you know, behaviors and good culture gets great behavior culture. And I think it starts to uh, starts to build on itself as you go. And so it's, um, but then there's a lot of pieces to it. You, having a mission that you're on and a passion for that mission helps you attract people that want to be part of that. And then, uh, and then they have passion and it really, uh, you know, it starts to, uh, it starts to build on itself. And once, uh, once you get momentum, positive momentum like this, it's uh, it's hard to stop it. So it, it looks like you know your early days of career were uh, you, you know putting it into your own words, picking the right companies. Those days, uh, you know, clearly you were one of the pioneering luminaries involved in in uh, evolution of where broadband is today. But did you sort of you know look to some of the leadership around you and say, look, these are the peop- guys I want to hang around with, or folks I want to be with. 100%. And I think it's so important. Um, you, you know, some of the, uh, uh, I'm going to get this a little wrong, but uh, there's a lot of people that say you, uh, you know, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know if that's exactly right, but I do know that the people uh, that you spend time with, the leaders that you're around, the colleagues that you're around, uh, really do influence you a lot. And so uh, I think it is so critical. And so I've learned a tremendous amount. I, and, and thank goodness in my entire career, I've only had a couple of leaders that were not great leaders. And none of those existed in the three companies that I just mentioned. Um, and so I've had very little uh, in there. And when I've had those, I've learned what not to do. And, and maybe we can talk more about that later. But I, uh, uh, the things that, you know, I learned a lot. Rogers, I was the most formidable because I was young in my career. And so I was, uh, I was a, probably a better student then. But I learned a lot. I learned a lot from Ted Rogers. Mm. And, uh, and even though uh, my contact with him was, you know, once, twice a month, he was such a vibrant person. And he would do things that just um, I've have flashbulb memories of him and how animated he was in certain uh, in certain areas. And uh, and that stuck with me. Mm. But the but the other piece that he had is he had great leaders all the way through there. And you learn good management techniques. You learn good leadership. You see how they do things. You see why they're so effective. And you end up modeling yourself a little bit uh, done right after the great leaders. And that's why another good reason why not to work for bad leaders, because Mm -hmm. people end up, you know, like it or not, modeling a little bit of uh, of their leader. If your leader is always late for meetings, oftentimes you're always late for meetings. If your leader is disrespectful, sometimes that happens, at least until you get to a certain point to where you can rise above it. So. I've been fortunate, tons of great leaders, and I learned a ton at Rogers. I learned a ton at uh, Liberty and at TCI. 
and I've uh, continued to learn each and every day while I'm still here at Comcast. I appreciate uh, sharing those insights, Tony, and I, I, I do want to be talking a little more bit about leadership. And What would you define your leadership style to be? I mean, I know a sentence or two never does justice, and we'll expound on this a little bit as we talk a little bit about what are some of the things you learned also not to do as a leader, but starting off with your leadership style. I've been privy to that. Share a little bit about your style, if you will, and what really gets you excited about being a leader and the kind of leader you are today? You know, it's a, it's hard to put it into one word or even a sentence. I don't know. I, I think, I, again, I'm going to go back to hopefully it's a, it's respect and that it's the leadership style that where I show respect for uh, the people I work with and, uh, and inquisitive uh, as well because I do, I am curious, and when people come to me with things, I am, but doing it in a, a respectful way, I think, is how I would uh, uh, describe it. I, um, I don't know. I haven't uh, never had to describe it before. So. <laughs> well, you know, I, uh, I, I just having known you over the decades, I, I think you couldn't have said it better. I think you've always, uh, you always push your teams. I had the privilege of working for you and with you, and you know, uh, I know you always. Uh, respectfully kept a curious mind for all of us going and that's part of your your leadership style and uh, and you did it with grace and and honor if you will but coming back to you know good leaders also always are very reflective and and uh, I'm sure uh, you've learned a lot on leadership so share a little bit with our audience on what you would not do as a leader you know and what you have you learned not to do as a leader so Early on, early on, I learned, uh, and, and uh, I learned this uh, uh, a few different ways. One is, is when uh, you're, you're jogging memories for me now. So when I was in my mid-20s, 26, 27, and I all of a sudden had a good-sized team, I, had, uh, I knew the technology well. I did not know how to manage people. I particularly didn't know how to deal with employees that uh, – that maybe needed uh, performance improvements and things like that. And so I took uh, a few college courses and I took a bunch of other classes on how to, you know, leadership and management and that. And then I witnessed this as well. And I think the number one thing is to uh, never embarrass uh, someone publicly, particularly, you know, somebody, one of your colleagues or your staff. And when I say embarrass, is not embarrassing them by having a birthday cake or something like that, but embarrassing them by uh, momentarily removing their sense of self-esteem. Mm. And I think if you do that in a public forum, you end up, um, you, you create an indelible scar that they don't forget. And uh, and no matter what apologies you do, isn't going to make up for it. If you If you do this in the privacy of your own office, it's one thing, or the privacy of a space, you can later come back and say, gosh, I was off base. I shouldn't have uh, read you the riot act and uh, that. Uh, and you can get, you can recover some of it. If you do it publicly, it's non-recoverable. Mm. And, and so after uh, hearing that in one of my classes, then I witnessed it several times. I witnessed it both being done to me once. Uh, and I can remember the exact one. I'm not going to share it with you here because I, 
but I can remember it distinctly at a young age and it's stuck with me. And I've seen other people do it. And that's a and that's a thing you can't do. And it's a management style that we don't tolerate here in our group right now. We've got a firm uh, policy that you just can't uh, behave that way. And it's uh, it's absolutely critical. That would be the number one thing. And, you know, followed on is just disrespect and disrespect is similar to that, but it can be even more minor. So I think somebody comes in to talk to you and you start picking up your cell phone and doing text messaging and other stuff the whole time they're they're there is something that you can't taking taking people for granted individuals or group efforts is something just uh, a big thing that you you can't do micromanagement if you if you're hiring high-powered people you really they're they're not going to tolerate micromanagement for long Hmm. and uh, and you hire them to to bring it in so you want to you know i say that we like to uh, you know, give direction with a compass, not a roadmap, and uh, align on the fact that we're wanting to head east looking for a sunrise, and then the, your teams figure out the roadmap to get there, not you being prescriptive as you go. And then the final one that ties into this, and I kind of mentioned it, is you just uh, sometimes we have a habit of not dealing with bad behavior quick enough mm. in, in a leadership role or some other role. And sometimes you do that because these guys are technically so good or this uh, woman has uh, done all these things in the past. But if they are actually demoralizing people without, you know, even in a highly visible way, the cost to the company and the image and the reflection on yourself and your leadership is far worse than any of the loss you're going to have from their technical ability. And so I think you just, you know, so I guess I kind of groups it into five things, you know, don't ever remove somebody's self-esteem publicly and don't allow any of your folks to do that. Be careful and respectful. Make sure you don't take for granted things that they're doing mm. and stay away from micromanagement and weed the garden. If you get people in there that are not following the culture that you set up, which is a culture of respect. Some fantastic uh, learnings that you shared, and I hope uh, for those listening to this podcast that it would really instill those thoughts, uh, you know, into into their leadership style. Clearly, you're uh, you've got a large organization today as the president of Comcast Product and Technology. You've developed many leaders uh, along the way. But you're also looking at the next generation of leadership, uh, I'm sure, even in your current role. And what are some of the things, uh, Tony, that that you're starting to see the younger uh, millennial generation of leadership do that, you know, you you find interesting to either incorporate yourself or learn from or be part of? Are there any things there that you would be able to glean and share some insights on? Well, I think there's a there's a fair number. So, you, you know, before I dive right into that, you know, the thing that I think is so important in today here at Comcast and throughout everywhere just about is, you know, we've now got five generations working in the workforce, working side by side often. When I go into a lot of these meetings, you know, I don't visual in on it, but you can see that you've got multiple generations. You've got, uh, 
you know, now we've got Gen Zs, we've got millennials, we've got uh, baby boomers, we've got the silent generation in there. And a lot of the things and the things that we've talked about are common through all of those. Okay. It isn't, uh, you know, the, the, the first one of, uh, of respect. That doesn't change with this. But there are things that do change a little bit and that have came in. And, and it's always interesting as these come in, they, sp- they spread to other people and, uh, and other generations as well. So some of the things, you know, is, um, you know, honesty is still super important. And, uh, and I can't tell you, I mean, the thing that you see on the millennials and the Gen Zs is they will fact check you real time. Mm-hmm. So honesty, I think, is critically important. Brevity has became more important. Just get to the point here. I don't need a, a long uh, <laughs> story to get there. You know, just get to the point. But why is still really important. And uh, I mean, and, and more important than ever with these. They're inquisitive. Mm-hmm. But why did we design this this way? Why is that there? And I think and, and that one threads through uh, all generations. But I think it's it's heightened uh, with the millennials and the, and, the, and the Gen Zs as we look at them. Fantastic insights, and I, I couldn't agree with you enough, you know. Of course, uh, both you and I have uh, have kids who have grown up in this millennial generation, <laughs> and we are subject on a personal basis even to these very questions. And uh, but I you... get a little more reverence at the office than I do for my kids. <laughs> yeah, we're all welcome to the same club, right? So. <laughs> Yes, but uh, great insights, Tony. And uh, one more question on leadership, and I'd like to switch to technology then, and uh, and then we'll start wrapping up. Execution as a leader. You have been at the helm of incredible evolutionary work in what broadband is today. You're one of the few in the world uh, that, uh, you know, has been a big force in making things happen and that's a lot of that's driven to execution how would you define successful execution as a leader well you, you know i mean i i can uh, be highly uh, I, I you know i i'm very proud of what my team and i have delivered here and in companies past at the same time, I can also always be critical of ourselves that we can do better, that we can be tighter on deadlines, that we can uh, do uh, other pieces. But, you, you know, I, uh, I think, you know, the success that I look at is getting um, here, you know, is really getting big platforms, big products to market uh, and changing people's lives with them. And we've uh, we've had the opportunity to do that. You talk about broadband in the early days, uh, you know, big deal. We did uh, on-demand video, some of the very beginning here you know, with the X1 platform and the voice remote. And now we're doing XFi. There's just so many things. And these really do change people's lives. And they're they're big. They're big projects. They're big, hard, complex projects. And if there aren't times along the way on these projects where you're losing sleep to where you've got stomach cramps to where you're wondering and almost thinking this may never work, uh, then you haven't picked a a challenging enough project because all of these uh, do that. And I think being on time, on budget, and that's important, 
but some of our best successes in my life weren't on time and weren't necessarily on budget. And, you know, in the early days, broadband, I spent more time with CFOs in various <laughs> companies I worked at who were trying to tell me to shut it down because, you know, it's costing too much. Being able to keep the faith that, you know, this is hard, these are big projects, it's going to do it and get it there. So I think ultimately being able to deliver projects and then also understanding that, um, you, you know, I don't want to go too sappy on this, but there really isn't. You know, there's projects that are successful and there's projects that you learn from. I don't look at any of these really as, as failures done right. The teams here and the thing that I've learned and I buy into is, uh, you know, fail fast, but uh, not at the customer's expense. And so we have a lot of projects that we give a go at, different things. And uh, and we know that not all of them are going to be successful, either because of execution or because of other reasons. But we want to get them out there and uh, and put them into motion because uh, action is is so important. Uh, if you get locked into paralysis by reviewing things, um, not only do you have people that aren't excited to work there, but you also you, you end up not producing uh, anything some incredible learnings that you've had um, all of us have had similar ones but you know you, you you've shed a different light because I think you're one of the few esteemed colleagues that's still sitting in the seat a few of us have moved into retirement or semi-retirement and uh, you know we're looking at it from a different lens while you're still sitting in these evolutions of new services and technologies coming and with that I'd like to segue into technology and uh, you have uh, been through an incredible change in what has happened in the world of technology over the last 25-30 years that has enabled the kind of services we have today. I actually have one anecdotal example. I remember you calling me in 2000, uh, you know, when I was home and you had just met with Nicholas Zenstrom and founder of Skype and uh, he had given you the first Skype ID and you wanted to test it out cross-continent and I was in Amsterdam and you were in Denver and that's about 19 years ago and here we are being able to do podcasts using Skype you know so you were always been at the cusp and forefront of technology and you see an incredible future of course you know you, you, you get to share a lot of this with the public press and everything else but just share a little bit about where you think the future of technology is going and how do you see the use of these services for the average consumer and how this is going to unfold over the next five years. You know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, what happens with 5G and, of course, the superiority that cable has with its capabilities and all of that. So love to hear your thoughts on it, Tony. Well, I think there's um, there's a... a you know, so this is a broad, broad topic. And so there's so many, so many things. I mean, clearly the the world has moved to software and everybody knows that and sees it. But uh, everything that can turn into software will turn into software and and is. And so we, we see uh, things that you and I built 20 years ago, Sadir, that were appliance based and other things today are running on uh, COTS hardware with nothing but software. 
And so I think that's software is just a, a real continued trend and the power of software that goes across. AI is having a resurgence. And of course, uh, as it does, it gets a little overhyped. And if you went to CES this year, everything mm -hmm. there had AI on it just because everybody wanted to see that. But AI really is starting to, you know, exert a lot of uh, a lot of power. And I think done right, it is going to make our lives a lot better. And I think that there's just things that uh, today, uh, you know, are done manually that can be done so much more efficiently with AI. And I think those tools are going to move faster and faster into uh, consumers' hands. I mean, you can go today. Uh, if you're a tinker and go out and grab open source from TensorFlow and some of the others and build, um, you know, tremendous applications with it, I think that's going to, to change a lot of things. I think in the home it, where this comes together is the cost of connecting to devices back to a router and a gateway and getting connected to the, to the global society via the Internet is becoming easier and easier and commonplace. And everything that can connect is going to connect. Uh, we always talk that there's certain things that just soon you didn't connect, you know, uh, everything from the smart toasters to the other things that mm. uh, are to see the value, but you're going to have that. And then as uh, the artificial intelligence gets better and better, being able to collect that data and do things that are beneficial to you and beneficial to your home and beneficial to your family. I think it's going to just, just continue. It's going to be a rapid, rapid race as we go forward. And then the final thing is, is we play in that space. And at the same time, uh, we provide mammoth connectivity to the home, which is going to be needed as all of these devices continue to connect. In another 10 years, you know, I think what we're doing on Skype now with uh, high speed, 10 gigabit per second, will be able to be done with, you know, full volumetric video, meaning that, you know, we'll be able to have between 40 and 200 cameras at each location, capturing images, and then transporting those in full uh, multiple dimensional ways back to other places. And I think that's possible. And I think we will see that now, whether we see that in residential or it stays more in business and kiosks and things like that. But all of that's uh, going to happen. And, uh, you know, the amount of change we're going to see in the next 10 years is going to dwarf anything that you and I have seen in our career uh, mm. up to this point. Wow. It's, it's, of course, you know, you get to sitting in that seat that you are as president of the technology group there you you get to see a lot of this and and of course uh, create value out of it both products and services uh, you've been a phenomenal leader even just uh, you know driving the uh, the x1 platform into consumers i'm a recipient and user of it today and it's an incredible uh, platform that uh, all of us enjoy using Tony, as we start to wind down this uh, this podcast, I hope we'll have a few more opportunities to get you sharing a little more in, in, in future uh, sessions and uh, future uh, shows. But I have a couple more questions for you, and I want to use that as, as the opportunity to slowly wind down. When you meet someone, what is the one thing you hope to instill or leave them with? 
That's a, it's a good question. I, I think, you know, it depends on the, the context. So it's a, it's a, a little bit tough, but I, I, I like to, I like to leave them with a, a sense of excitement. Usually when they leave that they were excited and that they like me and they'd like to meet me again. I, I like to leave them with a sense of humility that, uh, that I'm, reasonably humble and that the company I represent is humble. And that's a little bit of our values mm. here at Comcast and my team's values. You know, one of our team's values is that, and then Brian actually said this at one of the meetings the other day, is that we take our work and our contribution uh, very seriously, but we don't take ourselves seriously. Mm. And that's uh, absolutely key. And so I don't know if that's something you can instill but I think it's a it's a trademark that we think is important here, and so it's uh, that would probably be the one. You know, of course, uh, all of us have to look at ourselves uh, before we go to bed at night in the mirror as we decide to brush our teeth and get into bed. <laughs> but uh, when you look at yourself, uh, how do you feel at uh, at the end of a very busy day for you, everything on a personal and professional basis. How do you know you're done right at the end of the day? I mean, how do you reflect on that? I mean, can you share us some insights there? It's hard because to your point, and I think this is for all leaders and anybody who is trying to do great things. If you're really trying to change an industry, change the world, which some of these people are and some of us are, uh, some days you have days that are really, really hard where you feel like you didn't do it uh, you uh, in it. But I think I try and uh, every day just make sure that, you know, you go to bed, leaving the world a better place than what you found it when you woke up. Some days that's uh, measurable. Other days it's not as measurable. But that has to be your objective. And of course, you know, we talked a lot about leadership on the show and, you know, values and morals mean something. A lot of those get inculcated early in our uh, childhood and, and we carry those with us. And what are some of the things that I know you practice and, uh, you know, from a value and moral system perspective uh, that you can share with our audience? You know? Well, yeah, you know, I, I don't want to say respect again because I've said it too much here, but respect is one. Certainly empathy, I, I think, Empathy for the people that are working for you, the, the challenges they're facing as they're trying to get the job done, and some of the other, I think, is, is foundational. Obviously, uh, you know, hard work and, and giving, the, uh, giving the company or the entity, uh, you know, uh, a good return on what they're paying you for is uh, important to me. Honesty is critical, and it's, uh, and it's always is... Uh, is hard, but it's uh, because there's times in big business to, and you'll see that where people embellish a little bit. Oh, you know, the network can do this, the others can do that. We try and uh, be as straight and narrow as we can, and my whole team does. And I just think uh, honesty is uh, is also key. So I guess you, know, you put me a little bit on the spot, but I think you know, respect, empathy, and honesty would be three of my tops. Tony, I, you know, you, you're a very giving person and uh, a lot of us in the industry have been the beneficiary of that. But just as a, as a human being you are, and it's very reflective even 
in what you and your wife Laurel do and uh, in the foundation you have and, and what you choose to give. And I mean, uh, that's obviously a, a big learning for all of us. And you probably don't see that, but we see it, you know, in the industry. And we grateful to, to have Tony Warner as, as a leader. But last question or two for you. And uh, what are you reading as a latest book to, these days that's influencing your thinking? Can you share with our audience a little bit? You travel a lot, I'm sure, you know, so you get a chance to read. I read a lot. So the uh, the one that I just finished, which I do do recommend, but then I'm going to take you to another. The one I just finished is The Army of None. This one came, uh, Brian sent a note around because Bill Gates uh, had recommended this as a top read. And so we read it and we actually had uh, the author come in and speak to our teams. And it's all about autonomous weapons and the power of artificial intelligence going into uh, various weapons and what that means for the future of warfare, the future of the world. It's uh, scary on one side and um, intriguing on the other. So I, I highly recommend uh, that as just a, an interesting read for our day and time uh, right now. But the, the one on staying on leadership a bit, and I love uh, self-discipline, and so I uh, read before that uh, The Science of Self-Discipline, and it's by, I think, uh, his name is Hollis, Peter Hollis. And uh, the thing that was interesting on it is, uh, is as I read it, uh, there's a chapter in there that's written, um, I think, by, by a Navy SEAL. And all of a sudden, it all came back to me on the the way that Neil Smith, who was my leader here and my boss for a number of years until about a year ago and some of the things that he would do. And I didn't realize because he never said that this is something I learned in the SEALs, but whenever he would uh, ask you for something and then you would say this how long or this is what it can do and that, he would always up it by 10 times. And uh, <laughs> if you asked for six months, he would give you, um, you know, a couple weeks and things like that in there. And I didn't realize, but that goes back to the SEALs, and they believe that usually our goals are set about one-tenth of what is actually possible. Mm. And they don't want to set on impossible goals, but they think that they're often able to be taken up significantly. And, you know, there's others in there. There's one called the 40% rule, which is uh, when you feel like you have totally are spent and you've got nothing left and you're mentally and physically uh, exhausted, you've only used 40% of your capabilities, so you can keep on going. Neil used to have that uh, type of mentality, and so as I read through the book, not only was it a good book on leadership, it was just a good book on internal self-discipline, but all of a sudden there's all these things that kind of snuck out at me that, uh, oh, that's where Neil got that, and some of those that uh, <laughs> it's a good book as well. Neither of those I've read, so you've actually given me some I love to read myself. So thank you and for sharing that. And uh, one last question for you, Tony. It's uh, as you look at life, uh, what do you want people to remember Tony Warner by? Gosh, I don't know. You, you know, I think uh, probably everything that we've been talking about, hopefully, Hopefully, they remember me as being a very sincere, very honest, and uh, and a respectful leader that's uh, had the opportunity to be at the forefront of some great projects uh, here that have truly have changed uh, 
changed people's life and changed industries and and, uh, and other things. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. And, you know, of course, uh, for me, it's been a privilege to know you on a personal basis, on a professional basis, for sure. But personally, uh, you know, just learning from you and, and observing you, you're a very giving and loving person, not just to your family, but a lot of us as friends. And I'm privileged to be in that small circle that you have. And and I really appreciate you and your family, Tony, and I really appreciate you being on the show, and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Sadir. It was great talking with you. Best of luck to you, and I hope to see you soon. Sudhir, as you noted, Tony Werner is running a major company now and is involved in the creation of the technology that will take us into the future. He's not a former executive who's now consulting and investing. Nothing wrong with that, but he's still on the front line. So it is especially interesting to hear his prediction that the pace of innovation is getting even faster than in the past. He expects more tech advances in the next 10 years than you've seen in your entire career up to this point. As with many of the innovators and leaders you've had on Cracking the Code, Tony Werner credits his early life, his childhood, and that was, for him, living on a poor farm for development of his innovation skills. Without enough money to just go out and buy a new gate, he and his father had to invent a way to fix the old gate. Keeping the cows in the pasture helped prepare Tony Werner for his role as president of technology and product at Comcast Cable. And finally, Werner is a very successful leader, and he succinctly shared his list of things a leader must do and must not do. It's worth any future leader's time to go back and listen to that advice several times, memorize it, learn it, use it as you crack the code.